Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi here with Jen and Zach, and we're going to start this week in northern Iraq, or where the people who are fighting in northern Iraq might think of it as South Kurdistan. And that's because there are two U.S. allies who are almost literally going to war against each other. The Iraqi army that the U.S. has helped rebuild after its fight against ISIS, and the Kurdish Peshmerga, who have been U.S. allies going back way over a decade. And they're fighting on the streets of a city called Kirkuk. It's one of the wealthiest cities in Iraq in theory because it sits on a lot of oil. It's a city that the Kurds refer to as their Jerusalem. It's a city that the Iraqi government does not want to give up. We're going to start with how soldiers who have fought in Kirkuk have reacted to the fact that the Iraqi army has just reconquered Kirkuk. Yesterday, I, I cried because they sell my city to the Iraqi. I am not Iraqi. I am Kurdish. And I feel like that's kind of the core of it, is that somebody fighting who, in a technical sense, is Iraqi, in no way sees himself as Iraqi. And maybe let's start there. Like, why would Kirkuk be the flashpoint? And also, why would two parts of the same country see each other so differently and be willing to go to war because of it? Yeah, it's worth taking a step back here to understand uh, the role of the Kurds in Iraq. So Kurds are an ethnic minority. We typically talk about Iraq in terms of divisions between Sunni Arabs and Shia Arabs, but Kurds are Sunni but not aligned with the Sunni Arab uh, minority in Iraq. The government is controlled by the Shia majority. Most are Sunni. Most are Sunni. That's right. Thank you, They're Jewish, Christian, Sufi. But majority Sunni. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and— they were mercilessly persecuted under Saddam Hussein's government. Uh, Saddam attempted to ethnically cleanse Kirkuk, the city that's in question right now, of Kurds, in part because he wanted to cement Arab control over it because it has 40% of Iraq's oil reserves, remaining oil reserves now. But that's an extraordinary amount of wealth for a country whose budget depends on oil, period. Without access to large amounts of oil, the Iraqi government collapsed. And so the Kurds who see themselves as victims of the Iraqi central government and who don't want to be subjected to its whims would like to be an independent country at one point. But they can't do it financially without control over Kirkuk. And the Iraqi government doesn't want to give up all that oil revenue because then their budget is in serious jeopardy. So what you have is an irreconcilable conflict between two sides uh, and two different groups over the same piece of territory. Right. Um, so I think it's worth— uh, stepping back even a little further, just kind of clarifying the timeline here, what, what we're talking about. So, um, you know, like Zach said and Yelchi said, that Kirkuk is, you know, has been fought over um, back and forth between the Kurds and and the, you know, the Iraqi, the Arab Iraqis um, for decades, um, going back pretty much as early as the, the founding of modern Iraq. Um, but more recently, so under under the Iraqi constitution that was formed in the wake of the overthrow of Saddam, um, the city of Kirkuk, because it's such a contested city, was basically put on the back burner and said that the Iraqi central government would continue to legally control Kirkuk, but that it would be they set like timelines for when they should work out between the Kurds how to share it. So I don't I don't actually think it's irreconcilable. I think there are, are political ways to reconcile the conflict. But um, so basically, the the Iraqis kind of controlled it. Um, Kirkuk is the city that is this completely multi-ethnic. So it's not just Kurds. It's also Turkmen, um, who are essentially the descendants of the Ottoman Turks who were there 
um, back you know during the Ottoman Empire, which are another ethnic group. Um, they also have a claim to the city that they say that this is you know back in the day uh, Kirkuk used to be known as like the home of the Turkmen. So. What you had happen is in June 2014, and Zach, um, you had a really great piece on this um, the other day up on the website Vox.com. That's V-O-X.com. As if they don't know. I'm just making sure. Um, So basically, the Iraqi government, central government, was in control of Kirkuk. And then ISIS fighters started sweeping towards the city. And the Iraqi army essentially fled in advance of the, you know, approaching ISIS troops. So... The Kurdish Peshmerga fighters, including the man that we heard, you know, the quote earlier, he's one of those Peshmerga fighters who filled in the gaps and entered Kirkuk in part to say that they were defending the civilians there uh, since the Iraqi army had fled, but also as a way to assert power and take over the gap. Um, And so the Kurds had it. And then we can go to the referendum. Right. I I do want to clarify one thing. So the constitution that was drafted um, had a specific part of it that was kind of lengthy about Kirkuk. Uh, Article 140, which set out a process by which there's supposed to have been a referendum about whether Kirkuk would join Kurdistan or remain part of the Iraqi government. So I just want to clarify the Constitution had an entire section that was about Kirkuk. The referendum has never happened in a way that Iraq would recognize. There was a referendum last month about Kurdish independence, which, of course, passed overwhelmingly, but the Iraqi government doesn't recognize it. Part of what I think is so interesting about Kirkuk is that when there's the reference to Jerusalem, it holds in a different way. Jerusalem, at its core, is about competing narratives, like the Jerusalem and Israel, and Kirkuk is too, because under Saddam, he had a policy called Arabization, and Zach, this is what you reference with ethnic cleansing, where he booted out, depending on the numbers you look at, up to 250,000 Kurds. And what the Kurds point to is a 1957 census, one of the last that's recognized in which they were a strong plurality. They were 48%. Post-Saddam's Arabization in 1999, they were down to 21%. And so that's where the competing narratives come in, because the Kurds say, hey, this city was ours till Saddam took it. The Arabs say, well, it's Arab. Right. And that's the nature of the ideological or sort of public dispute. This is really about oil, though, right? It's about whether or not—and and political control. It's about whether or not the Kurdish areas of Iraq, which right now function as a sort of independent quasi-state but are still under the central government's control— can and should be allowed to become independent. That's why this was triggered by uh, a referendum on independence. The current fighting that we're talking about is what the this, I mean, was triggered by an independence referendum in September in Kurdistan, which technically the vote was held inside Kirkuk, laying claim to it as well. Right? This is, it, it pretends to be, I think, an ideological struggle and is in part, but the root and the core of it is over oil and political power. Can you help quantify that? I mean, just how much oil are you talking about when you say it's about oil? Yeah, I mean, 40% of Iraq's reserves, as we were talking about a bit earlier, right? Like, that is so much. Iraq has some of the largest oil reserves in the world. Uh, And so the amount of money that that represents, not just now, but over the course of the future, as that oil continues to be withdrawn, is staggering. And interestingly, there's been a question about whether the Kurdish government could sign deals with foreign oil companies or whether it has to all go through Baghdad. And I mention this only because my favorite soon-to-be-departed Trump official, Mr. Charisma Rex Tillerson, had negotiated a deal with the Kurds where the U.S. government said to him, this is counter to U.S. interests. And he very famously said, and this came up at his confirmation hearing, I don't work for the U.S. government. I work for the shareholders of ExxonMobil. So anytime I can mention Rex Tillerson, while we still can, I will. 
Those of you listeners who want to check off the Mr. Charisma slot on your worldly bingo, then now you can do it. So, yeah, um, it's actually, I'm glad you brought up the the issue of, of oil deals. So Russia's state-controlled oil company, Rosneft, actually just last month signed a production sharing agreement with Erbil, the, with, with Iraqi Kurdistan. Erbil is the, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, um, adding up to essentially $400 million for the development of oil fields, but not in Kirkuk, in the autonomous region of Kurdistan. So what's interesting is that just yesterday, now that the Iraqi government has taken over, has retaken Kirkuk, the Iraqi oil ministry literally just yesterday, only a couple days after retaking Kirkuk, immediately called up BP and said, hey, do you guys want to come and immediately start a study looking at how we can restart like oil development? There had previously been talks about having BP come in and, and take over um, development, and then the ISIS and everything kind of happened and it fell apart. But like they literally just took a couple days to already, so they're essentially already trying to establish their dominance over Kirkuk and make sure that they can control the oil and everything that's flowing out of Kirkuk. And it's fascinating because you mentioned BP, of course, being British uh, Petroleum. So you've got British Petroleum there, you've got ExxonMobil there, you've got Rosneft theoretically there. I mean, it does give a sense back to a point you were making earlier that with this much oil, it makes sense that you'd have foreign companies all trying to get a piece of it. And if you've got political chaos about who controls it, that just gets much messier. And Jen, I'm glad that you, in, in your comment, brought up ISIS, because that is in many ways why this conflict is emerging now. Right. Because we were talking a little earlier uh, the Kurds took control of Kirkuk, not legally. They didn't go through the constitutionally mandated referendum process right. and win. Uh, in 2014, ISIS was sweeping across Iraq, and uh, they just took it. They sent troops in because the Iraqi government couldn't hold Kirkuk anymore, and the Kurds were like, we want this, and this is ours now. And so the Iraqi government wasn't invading Kirkuk technically right now. Right. What they were doing is now that ISIS has has been battered and basically controls no territory inside Iraq, not disappeared, but they don't govern any – they cover almost no territory there. Uh, they, they have the bandwidth to start dealing with the political situation inside Iraq and the chaos that ISIS created. And part of that is retaking Kirkuk, which is legally still part of the Iraqi government and belongs to it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point to, to kind of give the broader frame here. So, you know, like Zach said – like, literally only three months ago, Iraqi federal troops and the Kurdish Peshmerga fighters and the popular mobilization forces, the Iraqi-sanctioned Shia, largely Shia militias that fight on behalf mostly of the Iraqi government. So the Iraqis and the Kurds were all fighting together alongside each other to retake Mosul, literally just three months ago. Just two weeks ago, they expelled ISIS from Hawija. So the ISIS's last stronghold in Iraq. So literally just two weeks ago, all these groups were fighting, not necessarily together, but alongside each other toward the same goal, which was kicking out ISIS. So essentially, a lot of analysts think that the reason that uh, Masoud Barzani, the um, president of Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, the reason that he decided to hold this independence referendum and to kind of start all this drama right now is because Kurdistan is having elections coming up. But also because he wanted to kind of do this now before the ISIS thing is totally gone, before everyone, you know, people are still kind of paying attention to it. So he was like, oh, God, you know, the West is going to stop needing us to help them fight ISIS. They're going to stop paying attention. I need to do this now because otherwise it's going to be too late. And essentially it's already, you know, it's starting starting to happen now that there's there's no focusing mechanism the focusing mechanism of ISIS to make all of these disparate groups that have competing interests kind of all sort of work together and overlook their differences. Now that that's essentially gone, they're like, oh yeah, no, I also still don't like you. 
I forgot about that. Right. I mean, it's one of those rare cases where the cliche, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy, right. actually holds true in this case. And it, it does come back to this kind of nightmare scenario for the U.S., which has had these groups, Jen, as you were making the point before, all kind of fighting together, which was a great and very important reason why ISIS has been defeated on the ground, uh, something Zach accurately predicted a couple uh, years back would happen and, and now has. And was mocked for it and was right. So Damn Skippy. He's doing a mic drop. You know who you he, are. If he could. Um, but this is kind of the nightmare Twitter. scenario for the U.S. You know, the U.S. has for a long time had these two groups that it's armed, especially the Peshmerga, who've received U.S. training and weaponry even before the Iraqi invasion in 2003. And now they're potentially fighting each other. So you had both of them team up, Jen, as you were saying, to fight ISIS. And there have been deaths. Like Kirkuk, for a long time, it was like a theoretical thing. It was always referred to as the powder keg of Kirkuk, that one day it might become a place where there's actual fighting. And there has been. There was a report Monday that there have been 22 Peshmerga fighters killed in Kirkuk by the Iraqi army, seven or eight Iraqi soldiers killed by the Kurdish army. And so this is no longer theoretical. Like This is now an actual potential war between two standing armies going head to head. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, my sense, based on the Iraq experts I've spoken to this week, is that it's very unlikely that the Pesh will attempt to take back Kirkuk by force. And there are two reasons for that, right? One is the Iraqi military's gotten much stronger than it used to be, and confronting them head-on after they've been battle-tested by ISIS and really worked hard to take back all these cities would be too risky. Uh, and second, the Peshmerga themselves are divided, right? When we talk about Kurdistan, we need to talk about the fact there are two different political parties inside the Kurdish government. And one of them is in power right now, and parts of the Peshmerga associated with that party are the ones that got into shooting fights with the Iraqi military as they attempted to reassert sovereignty over Kirkuk. But the other party, that one that's out of power right now, they withdrew in conjunction with the Iraqi military. They wanted to hand it over, not because they want to give up claims to Kirkuk, but because they want to embarrass their political rivals who held this referendum, which they sort of quietly opposed the second party, the one out of power, uh, and now are basically saying their rivals are reaping the whirlwind. Uh, and this... That that kind of fractured internal political dynamic means it's very unlikely that they would be able to effectively mount any type of campaign against the Iraqi government, nor I think would they want to, given that they can accurately assess the risks of doing so. Yeah, so I uh, totally agree, and I'm I'm so glad I, I was I was going to go there. Um, so just to to kind of let everyone know what the what these parties are. So the party in power, um, Masoud Barzani's party is the KDP, the Kurdistan Democratic Party. The rival party is the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PUK. Um, the way to kind of understand these is they're less like Republicans and Democrats and more like personal family fiefdoms, essentially. So you have the Barzani kind of clan that, that runs the KDP and always has. And then you have the Jalal Talabani, who just died um, earlier this month, I believe. They just had the funeral, I think, a couple days ago. His kind of family runs the PUK. And I think it's really important to be able to understand that quote we heard earlier from the Pesh, the Peshmerga fighter saying that he was crying at the loss of Kirkuk. There's something he said there that didn't really make a lot of sense, if you don't know, and I want to kind of explain that. So he said, you know, they they sold us. They sold Kirkuk. Um, and what he's referring there, the they, he's referring to most likely— one of the, the political parties, the PUK. 
So there's this, like Zach was saying, there's this kind of division between, so the Peshmerga isn't really this unified fighting body the way we like to think of it. It's kind of cobbled together and the PUK controls some forces and the KDP controls other forces. They were all in Kirkuk. And as far as we can tell, it seems like most likely the PUK may have made a deal on the side to essentially say the will kind of, you know, with Baghdad and with the Iranian backers to say, yeah, we'll, we'll just kind of withdraw from the areas that you guys want to take over in Kirkuk. Um, and so, you know, like Zach was saying, this is part of like a, a broader political you know, fight within Kurdistan. So when he's saying that, he's probably referring to meaning they sold us out. The PUK sold out Kirkuk to Baghdad. So that's what he's referring to. Um, and it's become this like big, nasty fight within Kurdistan that's essentially, so the PUK wants to look like we're the good guys, right? Like we can work with Baghdad and, and Iran. We're going to play ball and we're not going to, you know, split up it, Iraq. Um, and then, you know, the KDP is like, been the one pushing this independence, independence, independence is the answer to all of our woes. Um, and it, in part to kind of draw away from, attention away from the fact that they are wildly corrupt and inept at economics and running a government. So both parties are though. But, right, both parties, and both parties are. also operate a little bit like mafia families. I mean, when, right, when, right. You're, when you're in Kurdistan, your bill is for the most part the Bazarni family, uh, Suleimania, that's Jalal Tabani's little fiefdom. And when you're there, you have to be part of one of those two parties to have a job. So whenever, you know, there's the old joke that whenever a country has democratic in its name, it's never democratic and same for most political parties. And so these operate very literally like mafia. I mean, they sort of take a little bit of money on the side. They have their own deals. And at one point they went to war to such a degree that they invited the Turkish military. The Kurds have been a war on and off with Turkey for decades. They invited the Turkish military into Kurdistan to mediate. They're still there. So you can drive in parts of Kurdistan, there are Turkish tanks on the side of the road, which is kind of amazing and bizarre. But I do just want to go back for a second to the U.S. because not everything in the world revolves around the U.S., obviously, but here there is a direct American role, and it's a tough one. There are thousands of American troops in Kurdistan, mainly training, and in some cases helping them fight when they were fighting down from the north. There are more thousands of U.S. troops embedded with the Iraqi army for the same reason. So, Zach, I agree. I don't think it's a risk that you're going to have like a large-scale war between the two where you know Americans are on either side. But there is a serious political issue for the U.S. to try to navigate an administration not yet known for its diplomatic nuance. And let's talk about that. Like, sort of, how do you navigate this if you have two allies who both see this as vital economically, as you were saying before, Jen, vital to the sort of political identity, as you were saying? How do you navigate this if you're the U.S. and you're in between? God, I, I don't know. If I had an answer to that, I would uh, be in the State Department and not just sitting on the side. No, talking. you wouldn't. That, that would require <laughs> getting a job. The State Department's not hiring under <laughs> Mr. Charisma. They're cutting. That's true. That's true. Under a sane State Department. Uh, I, look, the, the key issue for the United States is recognizing that there has to be some process for resolving this kind of dispute. And that would mean getting the multiple sides to sit down for talks. It would also mean trying to push people back towards the constitutional track for resolving the status of Kirkuk. But I don't know how in the current climate you would be able to hold a fair and reasonable referendum on Kirkuk's final status, given the divisions between the Iraqi central government and the Kurds and within the Kurds. Right now, it it just, especially with people, I, I don't know how many, but people having probably died in the fighting for Kirkuk, 
it just it seems like any kind of referendum now or any kind of push for a constitutional procedure would be another flashpoint, another thing that would lead to an escalation of tensions. And while nobody, I don't think, wants an, a civil war over this kind of thing, the uh, risk of unintentional escalation is the scariest possible thing, as it always is in scenarios like this. And that would be raised if the U.S. tried to resolve the issue quickly. Yeah. And just to kind of give everyone a, a sense of the landscape here and where the various kind of external players are on this, I think it just to kind of clarify. So especially the U.S., it's especially tricky um, because the U.S. has a long and checkered history with our support and staggering surprising lack of support for the Kurds. Um, so, you know, even going back, so in 1991, George H.W. Bush essentially called on all Iraqis to rise up against Saddam and overthrow him. Uh, the Kurds and the Shia separately listened, and there were massive uprisings. Um, then the U.S. was like, oh, yeah, no, we're not, we're not actually going to do anything to help you, and basically looked the other way while Saddam brutally, brutally crushed those rebellions. So, the U.S. has not always been true to its word when it comes to supporting Kurdistan. And this is one of the, the weird kind of areas in the Middle East where nearly every outside partner essentially agrees, with a couple exceptions, that Iraq needs to stay all in one piece and that Kurdistan should not split up and become independent. So we're talking everyone from Iran, Turkey, United States, you know, the EU. Everyone essentially thinks that. There are only basically like two parties that kind of don't and who support Kurdish, Kurdish independence actively. Um, one is Israel, and then Russia is kind of on the fence. They kind of don't really like it, but they kind of do. And the reason, there are different reasons why different people, but essentially, um, you know, especially Iran and Turkey, they don't want to have an independent Kurdistan because they have large minorities of Kurds in their own countries that are in strategic and important locations. And they're like, oh, if you guys get independence, then our Kurds are going to want to do that too. So they really, really, really don't want that to happen. The U.S., for kind of other reasons, doesn't want to have Iraq break up. Um, so just to kind of lay out where that is, it, it, which is kind of puts the U.S. in a weird position, right, to figure out, like, how do we handle this? So, you know, we armed and trained and helped, you know, rebuild up the Peshmerga to fight ISIS, we also armed and trained and helped rebuild the Iraqi army. So they both have, like, U.S. weapons. They both have U.S., you know, Humvees. And now they're, like, fighting with each other. I, I don't think there's a group left in Iraq that doesn't in some way have U.S. equipment, including ISIS, that has seized it. So pretty much everyone is just fighting with U.S. weapons and just shooting at each other. And that's really important why the U.S. is in such a bad position here. It's also worth noting that there's almost nothing in which you could have no issue. We could find unanimity, except this one. Right. Because Turkey opposed the referendum, the U.S. opposed the referendum, Iran opposed the referendum, Russia ref opposed the referendum. There's a great quote in the New York Times from an analyst with the International Crisis Group, which was about the Kurds. And this was after the referendum on independence, which was rejected by pretty much everybody. They've made a miscalculation of historic proportions by proceeding with the referendum over the objections of just about everyone who counts. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, the Kurds are an ally of the U.S. that the U.S. feels in some cases a moral obligation to because, as Joe was saying, so many have been slaughtered over the years by Saddam without the U.S. doing very much. But when the Kurds alienate everybody, every ally, every possible ally, every enemy, that's kind of an impressive accomplishment in a really bad way. It makes you wonder why they made this decision. I haven't been able to get a straight answer out of anyone, pretty much. It's, it's sort of mystifying. 
uh, as to why the KDP would go through with this, given the isolating nature of it. Right now, I wonder if either of you two have, have thoughts on this. Right? Did yeah, I, I don't. I, it's not clear to me. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've talked to a lot of people um, in the last couple of days trying to get a read on that and, and read a lot of what what the you know the super close watchers of the of this are, are saying. And the kind of broad understanding is the broad consensus is basically that uh, there, there's kind of two. One is that Barzani essentially just misread the situation and, and overplayed his hand and thought that because you know, they had been so instrumental in, you know, fighting ISIS that, you know, and they had gotten weapons from all sorts of countries, from the international community. They got weapons from Iran, you know, they got weapons from the U.S., they got weapons from France, the U.K., et cetera, to fight ISIS, that they had proven that they were, you know, look how great we are, look how willing we are to help, that the international community would be like, okay, fine, we'll finally, like, let you have independence. Um there's that. There's also, again, the domestic political issue that elections are coming up. It's important to note that Barzani's term as president actually ran out two years ago, and he's been still in office just because, because he won't leave. And so there's increasing kind of resentment among Kurds about that, and they're kind of clamoring for that. And so in part, he wanted to look like, look, I can be the guy that's going to like lead us to independence. And essentially overplayed his hand and miscalculated, as far as I can tell. And, you know, in part, it's really kind of crazy, though, because it's not like he didn't know that other countries were telling him no. I mean, everyone was pretty clear, even the U.S. State Department, as dysfunctional as it is, in the last few days before the referendum was really pushing, Tillerson especially, was really pushing, guys, really seriously, do not hold this referendum. We do not, we do not support it. This is not going to go well. And they did it anyway. And, and I think you could sort of see, true. though, from the point of view of the Kurds, this referendum has been promised very literally since 2003. I mean, it's in the Iraqi constitution, and it's never happened. And I think for the Kurdish point of view, you could imagine they lost a lot of people fighting ISIS. Depending on the estimates, it's over 1,000 Peshmerga from what is not a huge number of the Kurdish army uh, in terms of the size of the Kurdish army. So it's a big proportion. They bled for the city of Kirkuk. They bled for northern Iraq for the fight against ISIS. This referendum has been promised for 14 years, never happened. And so you could see why they felt like, we're always told don't do it. We're always told this is the wrong time. You know, screw you. We've suffered. We've bled. This is the right time. We are finally going to do this. And if you're the Kurds, you can also imagine that you don't necessarily trust what the rest of the world says or care. I mean, you relied on the U.S., as Jen was saying before, and were slaughtered. You've been in war with Turkey on and off since for decades, going back to the 70s. And they may have just decided— We've waited long enough. We've lost enough people. The world has screwed us long enough. We're doing it. So not only have they been waiting, and you're absolutely right, not only have they been waiting, you know, a decade, they've actually been waiting since 1920 for their own state. They have literally been promised their own state since 1920. There was a, a part of the Treaty of Sevres, um, which was a pact between the Allied powers who were victorious after World War One, and the representatives of the the government of Ottoman Turkey that was collapsed, the Ottoman Empire, there was literally a part of the treaty that promised that Kurds would get their own state. And then the, you know, the deal was later rejected by Ataturk, uh, you know, Turkish leader Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Um, and then the, the the treaty that kind of followed up and took its place in 1923 had zero mention of the Kurds. They were just screwed. So it's literally been since 1920 that they've been promised their state. And again, I, I totally agree. I think there's a part of it that's just like, we're really tired of waiting. We've proved ourselves. Like, we have our own— you know, And it's important to point out, there are a lot of ties to Baghdad, between Erbil and Baghdad. 
But Kurdistan, in a lot of ways, does operate as an independent country. Like, it runs its own schools, its own police, right? Its own kind of—it controls its borders, things like that. So I understand that impulse as well. So as long as we're talking about uh, the international ramifications of it, it's important to recognize that this is principally, as we've been suggesting and Jen just got to— uh, a dispute between the Kurds and the Iraqis. People like to play up the Iranian role uh, in the move to retake uh, Kirkuk. And you even hear American analysts saying, this is a great victory for the Iranians and a s- sign of their spreading hegemony in the region. It's ridiculous. Uh, this is a dispute between the Iraqi central government and the current faction in charge of the Iraqi government led by Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi is very pro-American and not the faction that the Iranians principally back, right? This is a, this is not about growing Iranian influence. It's not about Iran seizing control over Iraqi oil. It's about a dispute between the central government in Iraq, the Kurds, and the future of Iraq as a cogent state. There are geopolitical implications to this, but this isn't some kind of internationally imposed plot. Right. To, I agree to a point. To to be fair, Iran, this is the outcome Iran wanted. Like, it, it is, does benefit Iran to have Kirkuk back in the hands of the central government. Iran also doesn't want uh, Iraq to break up. It doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. Right, but neither and, does the United States. Right, but— it actually, so, so it's not an Iranian plot. It's, no, no, not at all. But the PUK absolutely openly admitted that Qasem Soleimani, who's the commander of the Quds Force, the elite kind of special forces group within the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, um, was there meeting with PUK officials in the days leading up to the retaking of Kirkuk and essentially like openly said, yeah, he gave us really good advice that we should – not resist, and we should let the central government take over. Yeah. We need to go back to the constitution. So, just saying that it's not also a conspiracy that Iran isn't involved. Like they were, but again, I think you're totally right. I agree with you. This is more about Baghdad internal, pol- uh, sorry, Iraq internal politics. But it's also not fair to say that Iran has no influence. That's not that's not the point I'm trying to make. They're uh, they're like a player in the area yeah. and inside Iraq. But the PUK is probably closer to to Iran than Hyder al Abadi is. Right. It's not a simple, the Iranians want this one outcome, therefore it is good for Iran type outcome. I mean, I think that that's a good place to end it because this is an issue that will not stop. Kirkuk may continue to accelerate. I would just end with this. Uh, If you have not already done this, go online. You will find a video that's absolutely striking. So when the Iraqi military retook parts of ISIS held territory, the first thing they did on propaganda as propaganda for Iraqi state television was show themselves lowering the black flag of ISIS, raising the Iraqi flag. What they're again showing now on Iraqi state television for propaganda is them lowering the Kurdish flag and raising the Iraqi flag. And there's something very striking in the kind of juxtaposition of those two images. We all look for something. It's love, it's purpose, it's the great question of why are we here? And it's also, where the hell are my keys? So eight years ago, Tracker changed everything and made it easier to find your missing keys, your missing wallet everything that you might need and can't find, when they released their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing those kind of things again. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You can very literally place it on anything you tend to lose, your keys, your wallet, your cat, if you're a cat person. It's small enough to fit anywhere. Then what happens is, if you misplace that item, you can use your smartphone, and a 90-decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. 
It even has powerful LED lights so you can find it in the dark. Lose the phone, press the button on your tracker pixel, and the phone rings even if it's on silent. And you can even find it if it's some miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. It's kind of like Waze, but for finding things you've lost. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you have truly nothing to lose. So here's how you get one. Go to thetracker.com slash worldly to get 20% off any order. And that's Tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R. Again, thetracker.com slash worldly for 20% off. T-R-A-C-K-R. Thetracker.com slash worldly. Hey, worldly listeners. This is Sarah Cliff with a new podcast suggestion for you. It's called The Impact, and every week we have stories about real people. I got pregnant two months after I graduated high school. It was not planned. <laughs> we look at the policies that shape those people's lives. Too often here in D.C., we stop talking about laws after they pass. But on The Impact, we will follow those policies out into the real world where all of us live. It's just fantastic. It's just great. Subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast app you like the most. We're going to shift now. We're going to shift to elsewhere. We're going to shift to a very different place, a very different continent, to Austria, where a 31-year-old is poised to become the next chancellor and the world's youngest leader. That's the voice of Sebastian Kurz, whose party, the People's Party, just swept victory in the Austrian elections. It's a parliamentary system, and since his party came out on top, that means he is almost certain to be the next chancellor. He's an interesting person if you look at him. Zach has a theory about this, which I'll get to in one second, but he's either good-looking or he looks like one of the Trump children with his slick back hair, or as our social media manager, Julie Bogan, pointed out, he looks like Terrell Willock from Mr. Robot. So I think it oh looks like John God. Krasinski. I think it looks like Jim from The Office. I'm with Julie on this No, one. no, totally Terrell Willock. Yeah. I, know, I pulled up yeah, both of their it. photos last night. I'm on Team Jim from The Office. I, I don't see that at all. Worldly listeners, you could tweet at us, hashtag <laughs> worldly, with who you think this man looks like uh, I'm, we have a debate, but I think he's a good-looking man, regardless of who he looks like. Worldly, where we extend objectification of world leaders to men. But Zach, you have a specific way of objectifying male leaders that is your kind of grand <laughs> political theory of Okay, politics. that's overstating it. But I do think that there, there is a lot to be gained from political parties by injecting a youthful and appealing-looking person to be the figurehead of that party, especially when it comes to advocating a new agenda. Somebody who's younger and charismatic often can effectively sell a transformation in the party's identity or a new political movement. And that's what Kurz did. He's only been in charge of the party for about five months. And he changed its name, not formally, but in the way that it was billed in the election, to be the Sebastian Kurz list, uh, rather than the People's Party, which yeah, had and the New People's before. Party, yeah. And it, the whole thing was oriented around a kind of cult of personality sale. I, one Austrian political scientist who was quoted in a recent news report said, "If you were only casually paying attention, you couldn't even tell it was the same party, right?" So he's a a, a right wing politician who is trying to distance himself from the past of Austria's center right party, though ironically, in doing so embraced a lot of the policies that had been pushed by its far-right party. He even changed their traditional color of the party. So, like, you know, we have, like, red and blue for Republicans and Democrats. They have their own little colors. And traditionally, the People's Party was black, and he literally changed it to turquoise. And, like, was posing, like, turquoise is the new black. Like, this hilarious, like, he literally even changed it to, like, I'm fun. Look how fun this is. So, yeah, I mean, he's very, you know, 
young and he tells people to call him Sebastian, you know, don't call me hair curse. Um, he's very kind of like, ah, I wear jeans, I'm a cool guy. But I think it's, you know, it's important also to talk about what his actual policies are. So, Zach, like you said, he's he's conservative, he's center-right. Um, for the most part, it seems like the vast majority, like the focus of his campaign is essentially opposition to, to immigration and in particular Muslim immigration. So um, one of the big things that he he touts as a success, so he he is the foreign minister. Um, he's been foreign minister since 2013. When he was 27, was the world's youngest serving foreign minister. And as foreign minister, he was um, instrumental in helping push uh, basically get uh, one of the main corridors, the, the Balkan route, they call it, where uh, refugees are flowing into Europe, kind of es- essentially shut down or turned the tap down lower. Um, and that's kind of his big, like, claim. Like, look, you know, I'm I'm overturning the, the policies of the past. You know, I'm, I'm very opposed to, you know, his platform is zero illegal immigration and, um, you know, cutting back access for immigrants to, to Austrian social welfare services and things like that. Um, he also was, you know, behind some kind of... Uh, reforms to the way Islam is practiced and carried out inside Austria. Yeah, so th- that one's actually the last one. I'm glad you flagged it. It's interesting. Uh, at his request, I mean, he, he asked for this. He was given a portfolio that had to do with immigration as foreign minister. I mean, other countries, immigration is handled by other ministers, home secretaries and the like. He wanted this. And he passed a bill and pushed through a bill that was kind of colloquial known as the Islam Act because that doesn't sound creepy at all. And part of what that did was ban the influx of foreign money to Austrian mosques. And his argument was, this is the Saudis and other countries, they're going to fund extremist mosques, and we have to, we have to stop that. We, the money is dangerous. And so on its face, that's not a crazy thing. I mean, like some of the Saudi mosques overseas are extremists when they're funded. But it was seen as kind of the first step of his evolution towards a much more harsh anti-Muslim line. And it's interesting. This was covered in some cases, and we, the three of us were talking about this in the newsroom, as this kind of like his, hysterical Sebastian Kurz, leader of the far right. He is not a leader of the far right. He's a leader of the center-right. But part of what's scary is that a, far, a legitimate far-right party also did really well in the election. And because the way Austrian politics works and their, their governmental system works, that party is going to be in coalition with Kurz's party. Probably. So you, Probably, yeah. Almost We certainly. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, almost certainly. Um, for anybody They're still kind of mad at him, though, right now. <laughs> but the likeliest, yeah, the yeah. likeliest outcome is they will join and you will have totally. a center-right party in conjunction with a legitimately far-right party. That was founded by a former Nazi. Exactly. Legitimately. Legitimately. A Nazi. But I just think it's important to to note this kind of interesting thing where you can shorthand him as far-right inaccurately, but there is some truth to the fact that the far-right now has a seat that they did not have before. Right. Now, it's worth uh, stepping back and doing a little Austrian political taxonomy. So before- Because that phrase just gets (laughs) gets the blood boiling. It does for me. Anyway- uh, before this election, the government was a coalition between Kurz's party, the People's Party, the center-right party, and the center-left Social Democratic Party. Uh, and Since, like, forever, right? For, like, a very long time, they've they, been they, yeah, the establishment been, coalition. The, this is typical. Grand coalitions are, are pretty common in Austria. Uh, and there's this third party that's been around for a while, a lot longer than a lot of news reports would let on, the uh Freedom Party, this is the far-right party we've been talking about, the FPO uh, is the acronym, and they've been in power before. In 1999, they were also part of a coalition government uh, with the People's Party, also, again, the junior partner. Um, So it wouldn't be unprecedented. In fact, they got more votes in that election than they did in this one. Uh, And 
so the the basic point here is that far-right politics is not a new thing in Austria. What is new is someone like Kurz from the People's Party taking on their key issue, immigration and Islam, and mimicking it, not exactly embracing all of their policies, but taking on facsimiles of them or or watered-down versions, a kind of radical populism light. So one example is that the far right wanted to kick out immigrants who didn't attend integration classes. What Kurz proposed wasn't kicking them out, but fining them. So it's tapping into the same vein of anti-immigrant sentiment while simultaneously not going quite as far as the extremists that everyone's afraid of. So I'm really glad that you brought up populism light. I actually have a, a question that I kind of want to get your sense on, Zach, because you are you know a lot about far-right populism in particular, but populism more generally. What I think is interesting is he, if you look at nearly all of the headlines talking about Kurz, he's described as this populist or, you know, the headlines almost always say like, the you know, the new face of populism. What I think is interesting is that they tend to kind of lump that in and they're saying like the coalition that he will almost certainly have with the far right means that now far-right populism will be part of the government. But I'm I'm not sure that, and I want to get your read on this, on how populist he really is and what that means in the context of Europe versus other places. So, you know, he's pro-EU, which I think is the biggest difference between him and, and the, the far-right party in Austria. Um, but, you know, the way I, I guess, kind of interpret, I want to see what you think, is that, you know, populism in Europe particularly tends to mean mostly focused on, like, immigration and, and identity issues rather than a hardcore, like, anti-elite necessarily backlash. Because this guy's not anti-elitist. He's not anti-establishment at all. Right. So uh, this is tricky because the word populism gets misused a lot. Right. So the best way to talk about it is the way that political scientists typically do. Is This is always my take on things. Um, but they use populism to mean positioning yourself as the avatar of a virtuous people against a corrupt elite. That was not his stance. That is what the FPO does. And right. in that sense, it doesn't really make sense to describe him as a populist. But in popular discourse, people often use populist as a shorthand for anti-immigrant, what we would normally call nativist, or more precisely call nativist, I should say. And he's definitely nativist. Yeah. Right? The, the pro-EU thing is interesting. Austria is a very pro-EU country in general. There's never any risk of Austria exiting the European Union in the way that you thought other countries might. And so what Kurz did was pick up on the nativism of the FPO without embracing the anti-elite populism right. that it had tried to embrace. So it's more precise to say that he's the new face of nativism in Europe or nativism light rather than populism light, as I imprecisely said earlier. No, I mean, that's definitely how he's been described. And I think it's, it's you know, I'm glad you brought that up and clarified that. I think there's one quote I just wanted to read in terms of Kurz as a politician that I think is incredibly, incredibly striking slash slightly horrifying. So uh, an Austrian analyst, uh, Werner Faslabend, um, probably, Because, of course, that's his name. Of course. Um, so from the Austrian Institute for European Policy and Security, um, was doing an interview with RT, Russia Today, the uh, no, vaguely uh, Russia. Right. Um, but this is just where he happened to be doing the interview. Um, so he described Kurz uh, in an interview with RT as, quote, probably one of the most talented politicians in Austria since World War II. I'm like, that's maybe not the best comparison that you want to have. I mean, I don't know. Let's not make everything about that history, right? He means post-World War II because 
that is modern Austrian politics, right? Before then, it doesn't make sense to to do comparisons between Austrian politicians. I, I want to close this with like, the, I think the big question that's hanging over off this, which is whether you're defining it, and there are differences that really matter. So I'm not trying to say lump them together clumsily because the differences are huge. But there's this question, and in the case of Austria, it's less about Kurz and more about the Freedom Party, of whether the far right is on the rise. And if you believe that, you point to the fact Marine Le Pen got to a runoff for the French presidency, uh, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, his party got 20 seats and is one of the biggest parties there. The Freedom Party, again, is the third biggest party now in Austria, may get seats in the coalition. The counter argument is none of those parties or people won elections, and there seems to be sort of a cap. Somewhere between 13 and 20% seems to be about as far as those parties go. And I'd kind of like to close with this question, which is, do you see, is there a kind of continuing rise of the far right and the Freedom Party's win and its ability to ride with Sebastian Kurz as part of that? Or is there a ceiling where you may see in every country kind of spurt where they hit a level and it looks really scary, but they don't actually go beyond that? As per usual, it's both and it's complicated. The simplest way of putting it is that the far right is gaining in its base of support because as refugees continue to flow into Europe and as the immigration levels continue to ascend, it it activates racism and nativism among the European population, and that means they're going to attract more support. However, there's still a mainstream sense in a lot of European countries that these parties are unacceptable and shouldn't be supported. And what's more is that it seems to vary their level of support based on the quality of the opposition they face. So part of the reason that Marine Le Pen lost in the second round so badly is that Macron ran an incredibly successful campaign and and positioned himself very well. Austria is also a good example. Last year, they had a presidential election. In Austria, the chancellor is more important than the presidency, but this was still telling. And an avowedly pro-immigration candidate who is associated with the Green Party won the election. He beat the far-right candidate, Norbert Hofer. And this time around, the Social Democratic Party's campaign was terrible. They even made fake Facebook pages spreading conspiracy theories about Kurds that were they were caught doing. These were like offensive anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And like that's not how a center pro-immigration, pro-EU, pro-tolerance party should behave. And so the lesson is that when mainstream parties defend their principles more effectively, they can beat the far right. When mainstream parties on the center left attempt to ape the far right or run incompetent campaigns, they're vulnerable. It's it's not so simple as a so, linear increase. I, I, I totally agree. I think there's also another dynamic that's important to flag um, that I see a lot, which is I think the broader kind of more insidious influence here is not necessarily that the far right parties themselves are going to be ascendant to the point that they're going to be able to, you know, be the top parties, but that they're pulling the center parties to the right, particularly on immigration. I think you see this with the Austrian election with Kurz, you know, kind of adopting the the piece of the far right, you know, broader platform that really seems to resonate, the immigration thing, and just kind of discarding the rest of it and focusing on that. You saw it in Germany with with Angela Merkel essentially kind of having to turn down the knob on her, like, welcoming stance toward immigrants, you know, in the wake of the far-right parties kind of clamoring against that. So I think you see that overwhelmingly because the far-right parties have essentially made a lot of these narratives about, you know, the the influx of immigrants and, and the dangers of, you know, especially of Muslim immigrants coming in, have made that such a a normalized part of the discourse 
that so many people are adopting it that the center-right parties realize that's something they need to talk about and to adopt in order to stay in power. And that's, I think, probably the most insidious thing I see. I think that's also the best possible way of ending this. So thanks as always, Jen, Zach. We, of course, want to always say thanks to the people behind the glass, to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, to our engineer, Peter Leonard, to our social media manager and closeted Mr. Robot fanatic, Julie Bogan, who's shaking her head because she actually stopped watching season one. She finds it too dark. It is. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, we hope you do. Come find us, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, every other place where you can find and listen to podcasts. Tweet at us using the hashtag Worldly. Email us, worldly at vox.com, and we will be with all of you next week.